Welcome to the Podcast Connector. Each week, we'll bring you behind-the-scenes tips on all things entrepreneurship, spreading your message, and the podcasting space. Plus, we will connect you with some amazing people in health, spirituality, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Podcast Connector. We are very excited. We have a special guest today. This one is for all of our entrepreneurs. We are so excited to introduce Saul Finkenstein. He is a partner at a New York law firm, published author, and public speaker with over 25 years experience in corporate governance, finance, and mergers and acquisitions. He's worked with CEOs, board of directors, bankers, and line managers, Fortune 500 companies. It's endless, but we are most excited to have him on because he also works with startups in the health and wellness space. And we know a lot of you listening, that is you. So today we are going to jump right in and talk about how to cover your ass when you're starting up a health and wellness company. We're going to be talking through the most common legal red flags when you're starting up your company and in the startup space. So very excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast, Saul. Thank you. Nice to be here. So let's just jump into it. I know I gave you a little bit of an intro, but can you tell our guests from your perspective who you are and how you got into specifically working in law for health and wellness startups? Sure. Um, So I graduated law school once upon a time and went to a large corporate law firm in New York City. And I did sort of what corporate lawyers have always done in large law firms in New York City. And sort of about the same time, maybe a couple of years later, I started realizing that I needed to take care of myself, both physically and emotionally, spiritually. And the most easily accessible way for me to do that was through running. So I started with very modest running goals and would run a few times a week. And that kind of accelerated to running marathons, working out with weights and doing all kinds of other fitness things until I reached the point where I turned around and I had run 26 marathons and had worked out for multiple hours a day and, and things like that. And at one point about 10 years ago, let's call it, I was thinking about a career transition. And I was thinking that what, you know, they always say you should follow your passions to do what you're most passionate about. So what was I most passionate about? I was most passionate about fitness. And momentarily I thought about, is there a role for me in the fitness world? And I came to realize that probably the greatest contribution I can make to anybody who is in the fitness world is not by being an active participant as a fitness instructor or something like that, but advising people who are setting up businesses, because that's what I had been doing for my whole career, but specifically in the fitness space. So I started working with people who were developing new concepts in fitness. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense to work with people who were just, you know, rubber stamping what had been done before and trying to cookie cutter kind of things, but people who were trying to break new ground in fitness. For instance, there was a group I was working with that had the idea of a combined medical and fitness facility where you would go see top grade physicians of all kinds. They would evaluate you from a medical perspective and then working with nutritionists and other medical professionals prescribe a fitness routine, which would then be taken over to the other side of the house where you would actually do that. So that was a very large undertaking, two much smaller undertakings, all kinds of web ventures and other things. So sort of being the person on the outside, but advising the people on the inside seemed to be a good fit for me. And that's how I started. And I've 
found that it's a good way of merging my passion and my experience. That's honestly what I love most about your story. And I think for a lot of our younger listeners who are either in a startup or they're thinking about making a career change because they've been in one role for a while and then they start to figure out that their passion is somewhere else. A lot of people think they just need to completely jump. And the only, you know, in the health and wellness space, they think the only career options are, you know, being a nutritionist or nutritional therapy practitioner or fitness instructor, you name it. But in reality, like you can take your skill set of what you're already doing in any job in health and wellness is, is still a company. It's still a brand. They still need all different areas of expertise. And that might be one of your expertises. So someone's listening, you might be able to take your current role and job duties and skill sets that you have, and it can be applied to a business that is within your passion. I was just going to say that I don't know who it was, but some famous athlete once said that he would advise his children not to aspire to be the captain of a professional you know, athletic team, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, but to be the owner of the team, because you can have a greater impact as an owner of the team than you can as a player on the team. And it's really the same thing. You know, where do you have the greatest impact? Is it by being the personal trainer or by being the person who's working with the company that owns the facility that the personal trainer is working in? Yeah. And not everyone has to go off and start their own company either. You can be an amazing asset to a startup that's growing, to a company that already exists and get to live within your passion and not have maybe the additional stress that being an entrepreneur has that comes right. along with it. <laughs> And being able to, I've noticed that part too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like you can jump from company to company and try different brands and try different, you know, companies within the health and fitness space. But for our entrepreneurs that are listening, very excited to dive into some of the legal red flags and really important things to do as you're setting up because most of us, myself included, just jumped right into it and don't have a law background whatsoever. (laughs) And so there's a lot of things and nuances and stuff that you're not taught in school. There's no roadmap for building a company. And so a lot of times you don't figure this stuff out until it's a problem. So what are some of those things that you see arise in wellness startups? Yeah. So like any startup, there's always a fine line between getting the business up and running and being overly formalistic and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. You want to find the right balance. You don't want to spend all of your time micromanaging the startup process, nor do you want to completely ignore it. And so it's really finding that sweet spot. And I think to your question, the area that has the most significance and potentially the biggest pitfalls has to do with the equity in your company. So like a lot of startups, startups are usually short on cash, long on passion, And I have a lot of people who uh, either want to help build the company or the startup founder needs to help build the company. And one way that people navigate that path between not having a lot of cash and needing a lot of help is by using equity to pay people who provide services. And um, while that's often a good solution, I have yet to work with a company that hasn't fallen into the uh, major danger of doing that. And that is that you end up giving more equity than you should have to somebody who does not have a continuing interest in your company. So it's somebody who, whether it's a software programmer, a website developer, 
whether it's your first fitness instructor, whether it's your studio manager, you know, giving them more equity than you should have. And then after, you know, six months or a year, they're gone and they still have the equity. And you're wondering why did 10% or 15% of the equity just walk out of the door and I never get it back. So I would say the most important thing is to be very, very careful about who you give equity to and how you do that. And there are other ways to do it than just giving away stock. There are other ways we call them phantom equity and other things that could be given that look like stock and act like stock, but aren't actually stock. And that's a way of protecting the nest of equity, which you want to save for people who are either putting in money or for people who are have a long-term interest in the company. So I would say guarding your equity is number one. And I think number two is when you starting your fitness or wellness business, you want to not only make sure that you own everything that you're selling, meaning that you don't want to be copying somebody else's method. You don't want to be using somebody else's intellectual property, but you also want to make sure that no one else can use what you create. So while you can't copyright exercise moves, like nobody owns a jumping jack, nobody owns a sit-up, but there are things that you can do to protect your intellectual property. And you, you could get agreements from people that take your classes that they can use it for any business purpose, that it's there just for their own personal use. And so there are ways to protect your intellectual property so you don't find out that somebody has taken all of your hard work and then recreated it someplace else. Oh, I was going to say, I noticed there's such a fine line of that in the wellness space, because like you said, no one owns a sit-up, no one owns a jumping jack, and the same with a food product. No one owns like certain ingredients and things like that. And there's only so many words with so many products out there and areas being really saturated with both the health and wellness, the fitness industry. There's just only so many words we can use for things. So is... What do you recommend that people start doing to protect themselves with that? You mentioned with the fitness class, it's, you know, having people sign that they can't recreate and use it. But what are some other ways that we can protect intellectual property and make it more unique? So you want to create copyrightable material. In other words, you want to create, whether it's a training manual, whether it's your website, whether it's a book or a, or some kind of digital product that you could copyright so that people can't create that same thing in that format. So if you write a book about your method, you know, nobody else could write a book about your method. If you have a training manual for your instructors that you copyright, you know, nobody else can, you know, recreate that. They can't reverse engineer your method. So if, if you have a classes that are open to the public or that are digitally available to subscribers, people can kind of reverse engineer. They watch enough of your classes, they could figure out what it is that you do and they could try to recreate that. But you could do things like copyright your training manual. And as I said, I think the most important one is whoever participates in your product should sign a waiver that they're going to use it only for their own personal benefit and not in any kind of commercial way. I don't know that people are going around suing each other when those things happen, but you want to have enough ammunition so that when you do come across a situation that you feel is infringing and you feel like it's a big enough threat to your business, 
that you have enough to fight back with. And whether that lands up in a lawsuit is a you know different question. But if you don't have any of those things, then you really don't have a leg to stand on. And I think people have often found that out the hard way. They develop all of these things. They find out that somebody has copied them, which is a form of flattery, but it's still very difficult pill to swallow. And unless they have taken these kind of very basic protections, it's sort of, they're out of luck. If you're looking to share your message with aligned audiences, then being a guest on podcasts is the best way to do it. It is a guaranteed way to get in front of a loyal audience instead of testing your luck with ads or organic reach, which is getting more and more difficult. This is exactly why we started the Podcast Connector, which is like a matchmaking service for podcasts and guests. Cold pitch emails often go to trash or are left unread, and most podcast hosts only take referrals for their shows nowadays. At the Podcast Connector, we have a huge roster of thousands of incredible podcasts. We get to know each of them individually and exactly what they're looking for and what their audience is like. And we match our guests with aligned shows. We're looking for people exactly like them. We love to make perfect matches. We take the cold pitching out of it. It's a win-win for everyone. So if you are looking to get booked on podcasts, just head to thepodcastconnector.com. That is where you can see all of our options for bookings. Let us take the stress off you focus on the things you really need to be focusing on your business. Let us work our magic and get you booked on perfectly aligned shows. Again, all of the information is at thepodcastconnector.com. I find that so interesting. Have you, as a lawyer and working in all these different areas, have you seen a lot of people sue other people over little nuances of stuff? Do you see that culture a lot? There's a lot of fighting. I don't know if there's a lot of suing. There's a lot of angry lawyer letters that get uh, flied <laughs> like, or, see, you like know, fly around. Like cease and desist and stuff like that. Cease and desist yeah. and stuff like that. And it's amazing because I've seen situations where somebody will take everything that a company has created and will even say, I've recreated what Brand X has done and I'm bringing it to you via, you know, my own interpretation of it. And when you tell them that they can't do that for a variety of reasons, they come back and say, stop me. What are you going to do? And, you know, at that point, you have to make a business decision. And that's a very important business decision in most startups, you know, in the wellness fitness area in particular of, do you start chasing people who are copycats or do you try to build a better mousetrap? That decision is, is a critical one and people could often make the wrong decision there. And I think most of the time, the decision should be, people are going to copy you if they're not doing it in a way that undermines your basic business, just keep building your business in the best way possible so that the, the imitator looks like an imitator, right? Uh, you know, if somebody tries to knock off an Apple iPhone and it's really not a good copy, they're not going to sell a lot of them. And Apple's going to keep outperforming them and keep making improvements in ways that the copycat can't keep up with. And it's the same thing in the fitness space you know, perfect your business, perfect your method, perfect your marketing, perfect everything around what you're doing. And people will recognize that they want the real thing and not the copycat. So, you know, I think that's generally the rule of thumb is not to pursue to the detriment of taking your eye off of the growth of your own business. Uh, but there, you know, there are exceptions. Uh, I'm so glad you said that because I have seen the suing culture go around a little bit, especially in the CPG space. Again, there's a lot of words that people like overuse in different areas, but I'm a firm believer of just like, keep doing what you're doing. And if you're building an amazing product and building a incredible brand and community around it, 
then you have nothing to worry about. Like, don't worry about what everyone else is doing because they can't build the same community as you can. And I know as much as like my head is pulled in a thousand different directions of an entrepreneur, I can't even imagine taking time away from everything I'm building to go after someone else. Like that just sounds like too much stress. Like I'd rather just keep doing what I'm doing and not worry about what anyone else is doing. It just makes it so much easier. We deal with enough stress as right. it is. It, it, <laughs> much easier. And, and sometimes people fall into the trap of, okay, I'm going to keep my focus on the business. I'll just let the lawyer handle this infringement, but it never works out that way. The lawyer cannot handle the infringement without you being involved. So you're going to get pulled into it, whether you want to or not. And, it's, and particularly emotionally, it's very upsetting to a creator to find somebody has ripped you off. If you kind of dwell on it by fighting the person and by trying to stop them, that could be a huge emotional drain, which is, you know, and that emotional energy is much better spent on, as you said, building your business. Yes. Okay. So we talked about protecting your own intellectual property and everything you're building. Talk a little bit about equity. Really quick, if someone wants to learn more about the different options of equity, like you were mentioning, like phantom equity and other way of structuring things, is there a resource or what? how do you recommend that they learn about all these other options to know what's best for them at their stage? I think to step back a, a little bit, one of the first things that the business owner needs to decide is what kind of entity they want to have. Do they want to have an LLC? They want to have a corporation. They want to have a partnership. And a lot of that will then determine what kind of other equity options are available to you because those are very different corporate structures and they have different kinds of equity. But the rule of thumb on that is while it may be difficult to determine at the very early stage what kind of investors you're going to have, that's really determines what kind of entity you're going to have. If you're going to have venture capital investors, you probably need a corporation. If you're going to have angel type investors, you're probably going to go with an LLC. But whatever way you go, it's not irreversible. You could always change it later. So it's not a critical point, but it's something to consider. And then to answer your question about what resources, if you go online and you Google phantom equity or employee uh, equity, there are pretty good resources, but you really should probably speak to a qualified expert, whether it's a lawyer or a banker or a compensation expert about them, because there are, there are tax implications that vary for both the employee and the company, depending on what you give so and how you do it. And uh, there are a lot of technicalities involved, but just sort of broadly speaking to know what's available, I think the internet could give you a lot of those answers. Amazing. Thank you. And then hitting on the point of S-Corp versus LLC. And like you mentioned, you can change it along the way, but how does someone make the best decision when they're first starting out of what to incorporate as? I think the default should always be LLC because uh, I think that provides the most flexibility. And then you could, in most states, you can convert an LLC into a corporation. So it would, by filing one piece of paper, so it, it's not a huge deal. I think it's a little more difficult to go the other way. And, and yeah, but that's, that's my personal preference. I think, you know, if you ask 10 lawyers, you're going to get nine and a half different answers. But I, I think you can't go wrong if you start with an LLC, especially if you think it's going to be really you, just you, and maybe some family members who are going to be owning in running the business, then LLC is definitely the way to go. Fantastic. This is so helpful for everyone listening. Like this stuff gets thrown around all the time and everyone has their own opinions and it's best to go straight to the source. Okay. Continuing along with those common red flags, what are some other ones that you see when people are starting out? One of the things that's kind of a sticky area that does come up sometimes is 
the role of the founder in the business once the business gets going. So a lot of people who start a business are people that tend to start many businesses. So they'll start business one and then do business two, three, four, and five. And the relationship of that founder to each of those businesses needs to be given some thought. So if you start, let's say, a uh, yoga studio in, in a particular city, and then a year later, the same person starts a Pilates studio, you know, a mile away, and there are other investors, say, in each of those businesses. And so the role of the founder, how much time do they spend on each of those businesses? And should they be spending time on businesses that in effect are competing with each other? You know, should the founder, they be limited into the kinds of other businesses that they can spend their time on? How much time should they be spending on the business that a particular investor is focused on or has invested in? So th those issues tend to be sticky because you're dealing with the founder, who is also probably the person who owns the most stock in the company. And uh, there also tend to be people that don't like to be told what, what they can't do. Like, what do you mean I can't start another fitness business two blocks away? It's a totally different business. And I spend 100% of my time on each. It's not a problem. Everyone else has 24 hours a day and I have you know 26. So don't worry <laughs> about that. But uh, it... it it actually also protects the founder because the founder doesn't want to be in a position where people are pointing fingers or accusing the founder of not devoting the proper attention to one business at the expense of the other or setting up competing businesses. The other, the other part of that is also very often founders will use their personal assets in the business and they don't distinguish kind of where that line is like it's not uncommon at all for a founder to say to own a, a building or a house and operate the business out of that building or the house and they could either charge the business too much rent not enough rent and whatever is done you know there's a conflict of interest there because they're sort of on you know both sides of that and i find that to be particularly true with people who come into the fitness and wellness world are, as they should be, focused on fitness and wellness and not necessarily focused on issues like conflicts of interest and non-competes. But once you start going into the marketplace and asking for people to invest in your business, you know, you kind of lose some of that autonomy. And that the way you lose that autonomy is by having to define where your interests lie and where your time is going to be devoted. So I would say that if you're a founder, you should expect to have those conversations unless, you know, unless you're just going to be owning 100% of the business and never bring in investors. But if you're going to bring in investors, then you, you need to start thinking about being approached to consider some of those issues. I really love that you brought that up because it comes back to what is your skill set, like exactly what we were talking about in the beginning. And a lot of times the founder is very big picture, big vision, typically not as much as like an integrator and not as much as like an operator and certainly not as much as like a CFO or something in that realm right. of things. But we we think we can do it all right. Because in the very beginning, we did like usually wore every single hat that existed. But then certain roles start to outgrow the founder and there is more expertise is needed. And I think sometimes a little ego death occurs in there when a founder has to realize they need to trust and delegate and bring someone in that can really own that role because there are people whose expertise is in operations and finance and marketing and all other areas. And the founder has to sometimes step back and let go because that's where you can see a lot of companies crash and burn 
is when the founder still tries to have their hand in absolutely everything because they don't want to let go of certain areas to succeed. I heard a great analogy. Yeah, just add one real quick. I heard a great analogy. This was not my own, but basically a founder needs to move from being the captain of the team to being the coach of the team at some point. They need to be on the sidelines saying who does what as opposed to be the person in the middle who's actually doing it. I think that's so well said. My business partner and I, we have an executive coach and therapist and we've been learning a lot exactly what you just said through that because in the beginning you are the captain, you're steering the ship, you're running the whole boat, but then you have to realize building out an incredible team and then being a coach to them and making sure your team feels the best and is equipped with everything they need and being the motivation and leader is going to create a successful business and amazing company culture. Okay, we so have cool. time for one one last one. So still jumping into different red flags. What is one last thing that you see that a lot of wellness startups are missing or have a lot of confusion around? The last one I think is sort of a combination business and legal and it kind of touches on some of the earlier points, which is what is your, I think the first question that founder needs to ask is what is your motivation in starting this wellness business? What are you bringing to it that is different from all the other people that have preceded you? And as you know, wellness business, everybody is a wellness business today, right? Everybody stamps themselves as a wellness business. And I think that has become, you know, obviously overused, but I think the most, again, the most important question that a founder could ask is, what are you bringing that's different? And once you identify the thing that makes you different, then all the things that we just said before, how do you protect that difference? How do you nurture that difference? How do you grow that difference? And how do you make your potential customers aware of that difference then becomes your mission. Amazing. I always tell founders, like, come back to your why and come back to your differentiating factor. Like there's a million, all different companies out there, a million yoga studios, a million coffee companies, like whatever you name it. Coming back to like, how are you different? How are you building a community differently? Who is your community? And when you stick to that, it's like, it's almost like nothing else matters. You can just put your blinders on and keep doing what you're doing and building what you're doing, not worry about everything else. But then, like you said, the law around it is now protecting that. Now you know it. Thank you so much. I think this was insanely beneficial for our startups and entrepreneurs listening. All right, guys, we are going to wrap up this podcast, but keep your eye out because we actually have a part two coming with Saul because he has a lot more to share with you guys. So thank you so much. If you love this episode, please make sure you tag us on Instagram at the podcast connector, share it with any friends that you think it would be a really great fit for. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode. Don't forget, if you want to get booked on amazing podcasts, or if you're a podcast host and you want to get connected with some incredible guests, head over to thepodcastconnector.com to learn more about our service. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It truly means the world to us. And extra points if you take a screenshot and tag us on social media so that we can see that you're listening. Thanks again for tuning in. Have an amazing rest of your day, and we will chat with you again next episode.